You're listening to The New Leaf Project, sharing stories from instigators, innovators, planters and starters from across Canada. Hi, my name is Elle. And I'm Jared. And you are listening to The New Leaf Project. Thanks for tuning in and hanging out with us. Ugh. This was by far one of my favorite interviews that I have gotten the opportunity to do. Um, And I can't, I couldn't agree more, Elle. I, I'm sorry I stepped on your your talking there. I'm so excited. I'm so excited about this episode. Uh, Linda Ambrose is a professor at uh, Laurentian University, a professor of history at Laurentian University. And how I found out about her, um, a a mutual friend of ours um, passed along uh, this interview that Linda did on the CBC. And she was sharing about um, her research that she is doing on women in the Pentecostal movement in Canada. And now I grew up Pentecostal, shout out to my POC friends. So I still have a lot of love for them. Um, But what she was, the research she was doing was, was like the beginnings of Pentecostalism and how so many of the churches um, that were started or planted were actually planted by women. And I was fascinated for obvious reasons um, with what she was uh, doing and found out that she's actually done massive amounts of research on this um, in Canada and uh, so many amazing stories and I don't want to give a long intro because folks she's the real deal and she um, her story is so engaging because really she's sharing the stories of uh, of of the Pentecostal movement yes but really of women and this whole interesting dynamic that plays out through um, the early 1900s and you know friends I want you to listen to this even if you're like oh women and church planning it is so good um, and it's the true story of what really happened and uh absolutely she was fantastic it's this is going to be it's a long episode so it's two two parter um but uh i don't want to say much more because she says it all so here's my interview with linda ambrose let's give it a listen i cannot wait for you to hear this Well, New Leafers, we've got a great interview for you today. With me here is Linda Ambrose. She is the Professor of History at Laurentian University. Thanks for hanging out with us, Linda. Oh, I'm very excited to be here. Uh, you, I got introduced to some of your work uh, by a lovely lady who said, Elle, I think you would like this, Linda. And I've poured over your research and I've listened to your interviews. And Linda, I have to say, um, you're one inspiring lady. I love the work that you're doing. And I think a lot of people here at the New Leaf Network are going to enjoy it as well. So if you wouldn't mind just telling me, how did you get started in your profession? And how? tell us a little bit about your journey of how you found yourself here. Okay, thanks a lot. Well, I, I am a professor of history. I've been teaching at Laurentian in Sudbury uh, for a long time, uh, since 1994. And my areas of teaching and research are women's history and gender studies. Uh, so I've done a lot of work on rural women's groups and, um, you know, the first part of my career, that's what I was devoted to. Um, Several years ago now, coming up to almost 10 years ago, uh, a local church in Sudbury was approaching a significant anniversary. And this was a Pentecostal church. And they approached me and said, hey, um, you do a lot of oral uh, history interviews. You write uh, institutional histories. Could you help us out? We'd like to have a small booklet publication on the occasion of this 70th anniversary of the Pentecostal church in Sudbury. Hmm. Glad tidings. 
we thought of you. Could you write it for us? So I said, maybe, let's talk. So show me the sources. They said, well, you know, we don't really have a lot of documents. And I was like, okay, that's a problem. I'm a historian. <laughs> I need some sources. I can't make it up. <laughs> uh, they said, no, 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 no. You know, they, they gave me access to, um, you know, minutes and business stuff and finance. But they said, uh, you know, what we really think would make this rich and why we're calling you is um, you've done all this oral history. And there's a place where Pentecostals in northern Ontario, old Pentecostals, hang out in the summer. Um, it's a church camp at Spring Bay on Manitoulin Island. And they suggested to me if I went there for a week or two and talked to a lot of old timers, I would get the story about how the Pentecostal church got established in Sudbury in Mm. Northern Ontario. So I thought, well, that sounds like a good assignment. Go to camp for two weeks, drink a lot of tea with a lot of older people. And how was the food? Was the food okay? You know, the food was great. <laughs> it's north in the summer and there's a bounty of berries and, you know, good stuff. So, yeah, I was okay. Good. It was a great, great gig. Um, anyway, so what happened during that conversation, I got the story that for the job, that what they needed to hear, how this church got founded by some traveling evangelists. I guess in your group, you call them church planters. They called themselves traveling evangelists who rolled, rode the rails and got off, you know, at... Um, Communities where they thought they'd find a significant number of sinners uh, where they might put up a tent and have a meeting hmm. and, you know, potentially start a, a church. Uh, so that was happening. And in the north, uh, Sudbury, uh, like other resource towns, lots of sinners here. So that's a good place to get off the train and have a tent meeting. Um, <laughs> So that's all very interesting. But what caught my ear, uh, beside the story of who did this and when and how, um, by the way, the when is in the 1930s, Mm. what caught my ear was um, all the pronouns I was hearing about she did this and she did that. And this was a work of sister so-and-so. And I thought, okay, wait, who are all these women? How come I've never heard of them? Right. And maybe more to the point, here in the 21st century, how come if I go to these churches that are 70, 75, 80, 60, long, long standing churches, how come if I go there now on a Sunday morning, I'm not seeing any women on the platform, behind the pulpit, on the board, where are the women? What happened here? Because in the beginning, it seems to me that this was a story of women's history. And it was a story about a kind of work uh, that women were thought to be particularly suited to um, in the early patches of the 20th century. So what made me think as a historian of gender, over the long term, the long haul of the 20th century, something changed because these women were handpicked and they were promoted and they were resourced and they were said, they were told, go, you know, make disciples, plant churches, do it, uh, start a work. And they did, lots of them. But then, you know, uh, not too many years down the road, each one of those works, those churches, those congregations, as they got, they took root, um, they quickly became places where women were not the leaders. Hmm. And I thought, well, that's an interesting gender story because it was true then, it's still true now that the majority of people attending the churches doing the bulk of the work uh, and raising the money and all that, those were more than 50% women. Right. So the lay people, you know, there's a gender imbalance and more women than men. 
um, so how come in the leadership there's not? And Pentecostals caught my ear particularly because at the beginning, um, when Pentecost was, you know, uh, getting on the timeline in 1906, Azusa Street, uh, the big revival and the spread of more uh, Pentecostal groups, they really had the discourse and the rhetoric that um, this was the fulfillment of those prophecies from Joel, right, right, from Acts. Right. It, you know, in the last days, your sons and daughters will prophesy. And, uh, you know, they were all over Galatians. In Christ, there's no, you know, Greek or Jew, male or female, doesn't matter. And um, Pentecostals then were particularly motivated by uh, end times discourse too. Right. Like they yeah, they, they felt this, Jesus was coming back really soon. Get, yeah, yeah, get this job done because he's coming like any minute. Um, so there was an urgency to get the gospel preached. And it was there was a pragmatism to it that said, we have to get the gospel preached. It doesn't matter who's preaching it. Just get it out there. Right. And would this have kind of coincided with wartime then? Is that kind of when some of that, you noticed well, a lot of more women taking those roles? Yeah, you know what? That's a that's happening in the background. Hmm. Uh, First World War, a lot of women are getting into non-traditional work, like working in factories, doing munitions work. Uh, World War II, we see even more of that. But what particularly interests me is the interwar period, actually. It's the 1920s and 30s. Hmm. Uh, what was going on then was a phenomenon known as the new woman. And this was the era, if I say 1920s and we play word association, I hope that a mental picture comes into your head of 1920s flappers. Yeah. Dancing to Charleston in a, you know, dress with, you know, fringe at the bottom and a long string of pearls. I loved loved those outfits. I feel like we should bring those back. Okay, well, the outfits maybe, but, you know, (laughs) at church people are going to have a really big problem with a lot of the behaviors, right? Fair enough. Because they're women who are just outrageously breaking a lot of social mores about smoking, dancing, drinking, these, doing these behaviors in public. Right. Establishments that in the period they called commercial entertainment, so dance halls, movie theaters, and these women were um, not—they were not their grandmother's girl, right? They weren't the corseted, hourglass-figured, frail—you know—woman uh, of Victorian or Edwardian times. This new woman was busting out of those roles, and she was saying, "Look, I have the vote now. I have the right to." Uh, have access to meaningful paid employment. I ha- should have access to higher education. Um, I should be able to sort of negotiate the terms of marriage. Like they were going right for the core issues of feminist thought, right? So people were worried about the new woman. And if you think about the new woman and religion in that same period, the 1920s, the one name that will come to everybody's mind is Amy Semple McPherson. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Okay. As a good Pentecostal growing up, we heard lots about her. Of course. And she was a good Pentecostal girl. Well, she was a controversial well, Pentecostal Well, yes, that she was. But <laughs> but she fits the new woman profile, too. Not because she was smoking and drinking and, you know, um, uh, liberal ideas about sexuality, but because she wasn't. She spoke out against all those things. But she did it using the ways of the world, their Mm -hmm. media, their, um, she didn't endorse commercial theater, but 
she did what were called illustrated sermons. And she did really creative productions. That's what they were, lighting and sound and, you know, like today's 21st century worship pastors who have the lighting and the sound and right. pioneered it all. Anyway, so she fits that new woman mold in a way that she's kind of outrageous and kind of breaking, busting out of some um, stereotypes. But she's doing it within the realm of the church community. And she draws a crowd. Uh, She really drew mobs of people to those big uh, stadium, well, not stadium, but tent events. And then when she built her own church. Uh, Anyway, so that's what's happening in this period of the 20s. Meanwhile, in small, more modest, rural places like northern Ontario, uh, I'm not suggesting that these women who had tent meetings in Sudbury were, like, outrageous. But I am suggesting that um, although the church might not have been conscious of it at the time, a lot of what those women were doing was right in step with the culture, actually. Hmm. The idea that women could be endorsed to do things they previously had been prevented from doing. Um, And it's not the first time. I mean, the Methodists were doing this. Salvation Army women. There's a long history of those women rising to leadership in the 19th century. But uh, Pentecostals enter the the scene in the early uh, decades of the 20th century. And so we get these young, single women riding the rails in like scary places like northern Ontario and getting off to have a tent meeting. Um, After they establish a group of believers and a church gets planted, to use your parlance, or a work gets started, to use theirs, um, quickly this thing gets institutionalized. Hmm. So historians and sociologists of church uh, history uh, look back and say, okay, hmm, not just for Pentecostals, but for all these various faith groups, in fact, not just Christian groups, but movements that begin, when they reach a, a state of sort of their evolving maturity, that they become institutionalized, what we see is um, where the initial movement welcomed the marginalized women, maybe um, diff- people of different ethnicities. When the thing gets more formally institutionalized, those folks that were central and in leadership get pushed to the side. And you see the, sorry, but it is the the male white guys, there they are, and they take over. They lead the thing. Now, in part, uh, it's unconscious. This is just a pattern that we see happening over and over. In part, it's conscious because a new religious expression wants to gain credibility. It wants to exercise sort of social capital and be accepted. Right. And there comes a point where it's like, okay, people don't want to join something if it's crazy, you know, and Pentecostals, sorry to say, have a reputation for a bit being a bit crazy. The stereotype of, you know, holy rollers and swinging from the chandeliers and who knows what goes on in those meetings. Um, in order to endorse this as socially acceptable, uh, Pentecostals consciously or unconsciously thought, you know what, a guy in a suit, a man who looks like a respectable citizen, uh, this might have more credibility for folks in the communities. And so, you know, I'm uh, the jury's still out and I am still exploring, like, how much of that was conscious and how much of it was just 
you know, the institutional thesis at work. Right. Um, so when I say that I'm interested in women's history, I think we all understand what that means. I want to recover these stories of early women, not just to celebrate them, but to really analyze how did she get away with doing what she was doing? Why was she selected to do that kind of work? But when I say that I also do gender studies, I'm not just interested in women and the roles that are thought appropriate or inappropriate for women, but also for men. How, and it's a premise in my field of gender studies that these things are socially constructed. Right. Now that doesn't sit right with all evangelicals because they want to say, no, 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 it's essentialist. This God said, the Bible says, women should be like this, men should be. Okay, you know what? The Bible doesn't say that women are from Venus and men are from Mars. I'm sorry, but it doesn't. Uh, but our cultures have said these things. And mm. the church, desperately trying to be relevant to the culture, says, okay, what they said, yeah. Uh, after World War II, when the whole culture is saying, thanks a lot, ladies, for your work. And the factory's now back to the kitchen. Back home, have babies, you know, be fruitful. <laughs> we got a baby boom. Oh, hey, there we go. Meanwhile, in the churches, the same thing was happening. The churches were saying, thanks a lot for carrying the ball while the men were overseas or otherwise, uh, you know, uh, employed. Uh, but thanks a lot, ladies. Now back to the kitchen. You know what? The denomination that I'm part of, the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, traces the root of its women's ministries programs right there to the post-war years, the 1940s. And I find that very intriguing, the timing of when the culture was saying, okay, women, you need to go, and they said go back to, but for a lot of these women, they'd never been in domestic roles before, but you need to go back to the home. Let's get back to normal, quote unquote, whatever that means. These young adults had grown up in the Depression, born in the 1920s. There was nothing normal about owning a home, right. having children, living in the suburbs. The suburbs didn't exist so this is not back to normal. This is like off to the side to a different reality. The churches were saying the same thing. They said, you know what? If the stay-at-home moms with these young babies, if they got together, you know, they could have fellowship and they could, you know, have things of interest to women, right? And they could, oh, P.S., they could raise some money and, you know, it's all good. But what started to happen, and I've looked at Bible college um, yearbooks, for example, prior to the post-war, it's either 50-50 women and men coming out of these Bible colleges, or it's more women than men coming out of these Bible colleges. And then promptly at post-World War II, bam, the women are a very definite minority, and the men take over. Wow. And here they are in their suits and ties, because that's the post-war norm. It's a post-war goal, right? To get to the point where you've adopted that suburban respectability. So I try to take in my work a long view. I try to go like the whole 20th century. Let me have the aerial view of that. At the beginning of the century, in the era of the new woman, I see these women invited to the pulpit, invited to the conferences you know, asked to publish in the denominational papers. So these women write, and they write for the denominational publications, and people read them and say, oh, praise the Lord, look what's happening. Um, and I've written one article on a Pentecostal woman named Zelma Argue from Winnipeg, who was the most published um, 
you know, Christian woman in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s in North America. Uh, in fact, she was probably only outpublished by a man named C.M. Ward. Some of your listeners will recognize that name for, whoa, talk about gender prescriptions. He was very certain that we should live in separate spheres and that women had certain roles and men had others. So these women uh, were significant for that. They often uh, were really good writers. You know what? The truth is the women were more educated than the men. They stayed in school longer. Lots of these evangelists that I'm looking at were, um, before they were evangelists, they were school teachers. Ah, so they wrote well. Right. They spoke well. They communicated clearly. They were teachers, right? So that's the kind of girl you want. Like, she's good. You can put her on the stage at the front of the tent, and she gets through to the people. Do you right? have any Do you have any stories to share? Like, we were talking about Amy, Amy Simple McPherson, but is there a... I like to call them church planters or, or movement starters or starting a work, as you were saying. Um, can you share a story of maybe someone we haven't heard of or a name of, of someone who maybe planted a church? Maybe that's even ex- – I mean, I think that's fascinating that that yeah. church in Sudbury was planted by really a, a woman a woman planter. Are there any other stories like that you have? There are, uh, there are hundreds of such stories, hundreds, and they're just waiting to be uncovered. So um, let me talk about Newfoundland. Okay. I had been, I spent part of my sabbatical, my last sabbatical two years ago in Newfoundland. Pentecostalism is huge in Newfoundland. Yeah. Like so big that until, you know, a few years ago, they actually had a parallel school system. And um, the premier of Newfoundland, who we regard as the last father of Confederation, Joey Smallwood, um, because he helped Newfoundland join Confederation in 1949, he grew up Pentecostal. His mom grew up in Pentecostal meetings in St. John's, and uh, the church planter there is well known. Your your Newfoundland listeners are already saying, "Say her name, say her name." Uh, Sister um, Garrigus, Alice Bell Garrigus, and she is regarded as the founder of Pentecostalism in Newfoundland. Hmm. Okay, great. And then scholars started looking at Pentecostalism in Newfoundland, and some of them said, uh, "Wait a minute." Um, okay, maybe she was the first, but if I really look closely at how, New- how Pentecostalism spread across Newfoundland, it wasn't Alice Belgaragas traveling everywhere. She got these smart, young, savvy businessmen, and they planted Pentecostalism across the island. So this institutionalization thesis I spoke of before, you can see it in Newfoundland. That's how it rolled. As they try to gain respectability and they use business models, it spread. It spread to Cornerbrook. It followed the resource towns and the economy of Newfoundland. Um, And so um, scholars there uh, at Memorial University in Newfoundland have studied this. And there's one scholar by the name of Professor Rollman. He's written a lot about the institutionalization thesis and Pentecostalism. And so have his graduate students. And then a feminist scholar came along and said, wait a minute, boys, wait a minute. Miss Garrigus was not some old lady who was frail and a bit of a pushover. Uh, She was a commanding presence. And so uh, this person wrote a thesis in a women's studies department that uh, is titled, um, Sit Down, Brother. You know, the ministry of Alice Belgarigas in Newfoundland. And she cites a 
an incident where Garagus was holding a meeting and a brother stood up to say, hey, you know, she's a woman. I don't think she should be preaching or whatever. He's saying something. And she simply said, sit down, brother. And she exercised the discipline and the authority that said, stop, mm. stop, you're, you're out of order. Mm. Um, and so that's one incident that gets cited because it's recorded. But um, she did that a lot. So I came along and I looked at all that scholarship and I said, okay, people think Miss Garrigus is great and they celebrate her like Burton Jaynes does. Others come along and say, oh, I don't know. She might have started it, but she didn't like build it. That was the men. And then the feminist comes along and says, oh, don't write her off because you know what? She was more than, she's stronger than you're making her out to be. And then I came and said, what if I put a gender lens over Newfoundland Pentecostalism? What will I see if I, I'm not trying to settle the, the, the score. Who's right? Right. Is it all men and the boys built it or is it the feminist? You know, I, I'm like, you know what? I, I'm not trying to settle the score. I'm trying to put on gender lenses and go, what is going on? In that scholarship, first of all, why are we having this debate? Why does it have to be uh, somebody wins and somebody loses? Right. To me, history is not, okay, put your, you know, just everybody relax, listeners. But I, history to me is not so much about truth as it is about interpretation. Hmm. Okay, so what happened? Yeah, we need to get the facts straight. But why did it happen like that? What does that mean that it happened that way? And more to the point, I work a lot in a part of history called commemoration. Why do we tell it that way? Right. When there could be so many versions of this story, why is that the preferred version that we tell it that way to ourselves and to each other? This is how this great denomination or this great church, why, why are we telling it like that? So I, I bring those questions and I look through a gendered lens and I say, ah, aha, I think I know why we're telling it that way. We're telling it that way because we're a feminist. We're telling it that way because we were trying to say, I need to explain how Pentecostalism became so respectable in Newfoundland. How did that happen? Oh, okay. It's because they had these really, you know, solid men building, building the, the program, spreading the word, planting the churches, uh, starting the works. Um, Oh, it's because Miss Garrigus was anointed of God. You know, praise the Lord. What a great holy woman if we could just have more like her, right? Mm. So we use history for all kinds of reasons. We either want to teach lessons to young ones or we want to give comfort to ourselves or we want to look for models as church planners that say, well, that worked there then. Like, maybe I'll try that. Maybe it'll work here now. Okay, so there's this church and this woman started it and then these great pastors came and we've got their pictures on the wall in the hallway. These great men built this church. That's the story. Get it straight. If I come along and say, have you heard it this way? Hmm. Have you heard about the women who raised the money? Have you heard about the woman who stood up to preach and the men turned their backs or walked out? Have you heard about, you know, so there is another way of telling this story. Hmm. And what I ended up with my spoiler alert here on, on Newfoundland, I ended up saying, yeah, there was Miss Garrigus. Yeah, she was savvy enough to recruit some really smart, well-dressed, wealthy men. And not only that, but when I look at a 1920s picture of the, the workers of Newfoundland Pentecostalism, they had a convention. There's about 25 people in the picture. Half of them are women. So I'm like, wait, 
wait, why, why are half these people women? Okay, well, if you want to tell it through the institutionalization thesis, you'll go, well, because they're the wives of the church planners. Right. And I'm like, yes, they are. Now, before she was his wife, who was she? Oh, oh, she was a Bible teacher. She was the first formal Bible teacher in Newfoundland. She taught all the men that went out to those church plants. Oh, wait, her? Oh, she was the lead pastor of that church where she and her husband had been because he needed to go to St. John's for a few years to be the denominational executive member. So she stayed back and led the church and hired a nanny and a housekeeper to take care of the kids so she could do the full-time work of the ministry. Okay. Oh, and then there's this one. She's about to get married three weeks after this picture's taken and be a teacher, Bible teacher in India. Oh. Oh, and then there's this one where she is a single woman still, and there's that single woman beside her, and they've been partners in ministry for decades and they've been in these little outports in Newfoundland where they're, they're facing so much opposition, sorry, but from other denominations, uh, that their lives were threatened. They were sexually harassed. They fasted a lot, not because they were holy, but because they were poor. They had no money for food. Um, these are the women who planted the churches, who started the works in these little outports all the way around the coast of Newfoundland. And they got there, and here's my gender lens, they got there in boats built by the men, their brothers, their husbands, their fathers, their ministry partners. So there is that gender division of work. She's the one who can read and write and spell and speak well. She's a teacher. He's the one who's a manual laborer. He knows how to build a boat. He knows how to build a church, you know, right? So there is gendered work that they're each doing, but the work of the ministry, as we think of it now in the 21st century, right. the teaching, the preaching, the writing, a lot of that was women's work in the beginning because the men could barely spell. Wow. When they got to Bible colleges, they didn't even have grade six education. So they hired special English teachers to teach these guys how to write a proper sentence, how to spell how to public speak, you know, do a, a preach, we, but they didn't call it, you know, homiletics because women shouldn't go there, but they taught them how to speak in public, right? Well, friends, I hope that you have enjoyed the first part of our interview with Linda as much as I enjoyed doing it. Great stories. Ugh. So awesome. And uh, I just hope you're encouraged by it. I, I know that I was. Yeah, I loved that. And I cannot wait for part two. Can't wait to share part two. Uh, you know, the reality is women have played massive roles in so many of the denominations that are a part of the New Leaf Network historically. And, and if we want to understand the future of church planting and what that looks like, women are a part of it. But we also have to understand the past and the past will tell us a lot about our future. So what's so cool is like there are these are unwritten stories. So if you are a historically minded person um, or if Linda is listening to this too, listen, there are free Methodist stories of of women who started churches. Uh, women were huge in southwestern Ontario 
part of the church planting that's happened there. The church that I'm a part of here in Saskatoon, Lakeview Free Methodist, was started by a woman. So awesome, so interesting. And uh, this is an untapped, untold story, and it's happening. It's happened right here in the good old Canada, the frozen north. And uh, and I'm excited. L, you have been dangling this in front of me. You have said Linda might. She is considering coming to our event in May. I hope she does more than just attend. I hope she presents and I hope she tells some of these stories because I think it will blow people's minds. So please tell me this is happening. Is it happening? I I, I have my fingers crossed and my toes crossed. Okay. So we're hoping that it'll work out schedule-wise. She's a very busy lady, um, but hopefully she's able to come. And you know, when you talk about these stories and the fact that they're they're disappearing, like that is... It's such a tragedy to think that there's so much history, and I'm sure that there's so many denominations that have these stories mm-hmm. in them. It's not just the POC or, or the Free Methodists. I'm sure there's so many other yeah. denominations and, and so many other stories, and the fact that she, is, that she is grabbing those stories before they go is so encouraging to me. She's a gift to the Canadian church. Absolutely. And I, I mean that with my whole heart. Absolutely. And I really hope that she's able to come to the event. So uh, Linda, if you're listening, this is our, our podcast appeal to you. Um, and if anybody friends, listen uh, out there in podcast land, if anybody out there knows Linda Ambrose, I need you to start picketing in front of her house. I need you to, to flood her inbox with emails, beg her to come to our event in May because we need this story. We need all of these stories. Absolutely. So I'm really excited for you to listen to part two. Um, So this will be a two-parter. So listen up for the next one, uh, uh, the next stories from Linda, because they're wonderful. So thanks for listening to this. Thanks to Linda for a great interview. And uh, we will see you next time, friends. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the New Leaf Podcast. You can find us on the web at newleafnetwork.ca or head on over to our Facebook page, New Leaf Network. We have events, workshops, and conversations happening all the time. We would love if you could join us as we share the stories of planters and starters all across Canada.